You know, there's been a, an explosion of storytelling platforms uh, today that are available, and it doesn't appear that it's slowing down anytime soon. Uh, it started off with Netflix, you've got Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, and the list goes on. It seems like there's a new one every month, uh, and now we have the ability to, to build our own personal libraries, um, r- romantic comedies, if you're into that, action flicks. Uh, Becky and I, t- we really love the, the British crime mysteries and dramas. But really, the choices for those options these days are, are really overwhelming. But there was a time when millions of people t- turn, turned on their radios and tuned in every day to hear about interesting characters and their amazing backstories. Paul Harvey was a radio broadcaster and personality for ABC News Radio. And from 1951 to 2008, his programs reached as many as 24 million people per week. His program, Paul Harvey News, was carried on 1,200 radio stations and on 400 American Forces Network stations. And he was also in 300 newspapers. And he, he was an early riser. I did some reading about him. To prepare for his broadcast, he would get up at 3 in the morning and start sifting through overnight resources uh, for what he says, quote, to see what foolish and or heroic things hundreds of millions of people have been doing all night, so I have something to talk about. <laughs> now, his first broadcast would hit the airwaves at 6.30 a.m., and, and I remember uh, growing up as a kid with my dad's uh, alarm clock radio going on, uh, I would hear his voice. Uh, and Paul Harvey, he, he was really a master storyteller. And after a long break, he would come back and crescendo with the iconic phrase, and now you know the rest of the story. And millions of people would hang on to Paul Harvey's every word to learn how these stories would end. Because every great story has an ending that gives that story ultimate meaning. This is the final message in the This Is Our Story series where we've looked at key moments in the grand story of the Bible. Uh, And in this journey, we've hit uh, uh, different answers. We try to give answers to some of the life's most important questions. And here they are again for for review. Um, every, Every worldview, every religion has to answer these important questions. Where did we come from? What's our origin? Why are we here? What's, what's our purpose in life? Who are we? What's our identity? And finally, where are we ultimately going? What is our destiny? And we have noted that throughout all of these messages, every single one of us need answers to these key questions to find meaning in life. See, there are a lot of stories out there, a lot of narratives that are co- competing for your mind, and for your hard narratives where you will ultimately find and place your identity. And one hope of this series has been to give you a unified biblical framework so you can better understand your identity and how your story fits into God's overarching story. And another hope for this series has been to equip you so you can engage your friends, your family, and neighbors with the better story of Christianity found in the Bible. And in this series, we've had some great messages. We've covered in the beginning, we've covered creation. We've covered God's missional call to the nations. 
We've talked about God's covenants with his people, how to live in God's kingdom, how God became one of us in the incarnation. At last week on Easter Sunday, about meeting the risen Jesus and the inbreaking of new creation. And today I want to conclude the series by giving you not just the resolution to the series, but the resolution, the end of the Bible and of history itself. And I want to answer the question today, the last question, where are we going? What is our ultimate destiny? When the pandemic hit, there was an explosion of Google searches for keywords and phrases like the end of the world or apocalypse. And in the modern usage of the word, the, the meaning of the word apocalypse has come to be uh, the, the end of the world. When, when you hear that phrase, most people immediately think of the final, final cataclysmic end to the world. But the original biblical meaning of the word apocalypse in the Bible is a, a revelation or, or an unveiling. Another way to say it is to get a heavenly perspective or a true perspective on ultimate reality. And when the pandemic took hold back in March of 2020, many people began to talk much more openly about the end of the world. One Christian author said that this isn't the final apocalypse, but it's an apocalypse. In other words, God is revealing something to us in this moment in history. And if we take inventory of the last year, I think that we would all agree there have been some incredible revelations in our world about the relationship between government intervention and personal freedom, about the relationship between the races, about the relationship between the church and politics. See, and I, I think that we would all agree that of the many revelations that we've received over the last year, they were surprising. But what do you do with revelation? See, I remember last year when we were having shortages in the grocery, toilet paper was a big deal, but cleaning supplies, you would go to Kroger and they'd be rationing meat. And I remember saying to several people, if this is a trial run, if this is a preparation, then I need to understand and I need to remember what's happening right now so I can apply it and prepare for the future. See, but even now I can feel myself slipping back into a comfortable expectation that things are going to be normal. And as we hopefully come to the end of this pandemic, many people are craving a return to normal. I understand that. Me too. I want my kids to be in school. I want to go to restaurants. I really miss concerts. But if we go back to our normal way of thinking and our normal priorities, then we have, we'll have wasted this opportunity to change and prepare ourselves for the days ahead. As we heard from Pastor Tim last week at Easter, new creation has already been inaugurated with the resurrection of Jesus, but it will be ultimately consummated at the end of all things. And right now we are living in the already not yet of God's kingdom. And because we live in this tension, this is where revelation has particular, revel uh, particular relevance for us today. 
And my main text today is in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. It's the culmination of our story. It's the incredible, breathtaking picture of what lies ahead for every follower of Jesus Christ. But before I begin, I want to look at some important uh, highlights and context from other parts of Revelation. I'll be hitting on some of the, the high points and the main themes of Revelation to set the, set the stage for the end, for the new heaven and the new earth. So for some, in, some, uh, some in great in-depth teaching on Revelation, I, I recommend you check out Mickey Brisendine's Bible study on our social media channels. And like John's original audience, the message of Revelation and the new heaven and new earth should both comfort us and challenge us. And see, my hope for this message is that when we receive Revelation, that it's more than just information. The hope is that Revelation becomes the fuel for transformation, that it will lead us in such a way that leads to, act to action. The big idea for this message is very simple. The new heaven and new earth should change how we live today. So let's dive into some of the background of Revelation. It was written by the Apostle John. Most scholars, when analyzing the, the internal content of Revelation and compare it with extra-biblical extra accounts of uh, uh, history of persecution around that time, most scholars dated to the end of the late first century during the reign of the Emperor Domitian, where there was a terrible release of persecution on the church. And Revelation is a challenging book. I think we would all agree with that. Revelation, of all the New Testament books, has the most allusions and references to the Old Testament. Uh, in Revelation, we're dealing with three different genres that it's written in. First is the apocalyptic style of literature. And one of the hallmarks of apocalyptic literature is revelatory experiences like dreams or, or visions, which the, the seer of these visions is taken into God's presence where they receive a, a, a picture of ultimate reality from God or from heaven's perspective. And revelation and apocalyptic literature in general is written to engage our information, our, our imagination and shape how we think about reality. And there are several different interpretive methods for reading revelation. I don't have time to unpack all of them. Uh, they have their own strengths and weaknesses. But I will say this, one key to reading revelation is you must read it with humility. I don't have time to unpack, again, all those resources, but we do have some introductory resources that we can give you if you're interested. Secondly, Revelation is prophetic. It's prophetic in two ways. It's prophetic in foretelling in that it discloses things that are coming down in the future, but it's also forthtelling. It's God speaking into a specific situation at a moment in time. And third, Revelation is, is an epistle. It's, it's an actual letter that was written and meant to be shared with the, the churches in Asia. And John is speaking prophetically and pastorally to exhort his hearers to endurance in the face of extreme persecution and to assure them of God's final, ultimate victory over evil. And the same reasons that John wrote to the seven churches are relevant for us today. As the West becomes increasingly post-Christian, we need to prepare for greater opposition to the gospel and the kingdom of God in our culture. We don't have to worry. Jesus prepared us for these days. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Luke 21, 17 says, You will be hated by all for my namesake. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Wow. Again, my main text today is chapters 21 and 22, but let's look in chapter 20 for a little bit of uh, context preceding. In chapter 20 in Revelation, we see that the millennial reign has come, and when the thousand years are, are ended here, Satan will be released, and John, John says that there will be a, a final gathering for a battle. He says their number is like the sand in the sea, and they march to prepare for this battle, but it says that fire came down from heaven and consumed them. In verse 10 it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. It's the final defeat of Satan. It's the final defeat of evil going on. John says he saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. There's a resurrection and there's a final judgment. And it says here that the dead, in verse 12, were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they'd done. And then it says, verse 14 and 15, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, as we go through our text today, there are four key things that, that, that this sets the stage for. Four key things that are going to be gloriously restored. So the first one is creation Restored. And I want you to just take a minute and, and relax and, and let the text form a picture in your mind. And enjoy with me an incredible picture that John sees and he passes on to us. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And Revelation, as we talked about, apocalyptic literature is, is vision and dream language. It's meant to provoke our imagination. And in this opening section, we see John describing his, his vision of the, the new universe restored, new creation. And many of the images that, that are here in this section are familiar echoes from previous eras in biblical history and prophetic scripture, but here they're brought forward to a glorious restoration. Jesus in Matthew 19, when he's talking about the new world, the, the word that he uses there is actually the word for, for regeneration or mean, meaning to be, to be born again, that in this creation, paradise will be restored and born again. And here in this passage, there are immediate hyperlinks to the creation account in Genesis 1 that draw your attention. And what I love how God uses these literary design patterns in the Bible to communicate his purposes. 
And I'm just going to hit a few of them here because there are a lot. First is the garden image. Eden is depicted originally as the place where heaven and earth intersect. A revelation is the restoration of that place. And you have some direct garden connections here from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 2.9 says, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Here, Revelation 22, uh, looking ahead, it says, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we see the tree of life again here in, in, in a restored context, a, a new context. Genesis 2.10, reaching back, says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Reaching ahead to Revelation 22, verse 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So here you have, have the garden recreated, the garden image. Next, there's a reference in verse, verses 1 and 2 that, uh, that the sea is going to be no more, right? In, in, ver- in Revelation 21, it says, here, this, this connection also reaches back to Genesis 1 and God bringing order to chaos as the Spirit hovered over the seas. And, and in near ancient uh, Eastern religion and mythology, the, the sea was depicted as a chaotic place talks about the chaotic sea monster. And here, also, in a New Testament reference from earlier in Revelation, in chapter 13, we see John describing the beast that rises out of the sea. And here, in new creation, the, in the elimination of the sea, God is communicating that the source and the place of evil is defeated. So we've got the garden, we've got the sea, and now we have the city as bride. Verse 2 of chapter 21, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here you see the city united with the image of of the bride. And and you have a, a direct tie back to Isaiah 65. And then a little bit later in, in Revelation, there's a, a greater description here of the city. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And here, the new Jerusalem as bride is the fulfillment of, the, of Ephesians chapter 5 and, and the references that Jesus will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. And all of these images, this cluster of images is an over, of overlap that we see here in Revelation, de, Revelation depict what new creation will look like. So now that we've kind of set the stage with creation restored, next is relationship restored. One of the hardest things for all of us to deal with during the pandemic has been the social separation and isolation. We see the horrific impact that it has on our young children. We see it in the the dislocation, the devastation of families, and we even feel the pain of that separation here at the church. 
But this has been especially difficult for those who've not been able to say goodbye to loved ones who were passing away. Just yesterday, I saw one of the most horrific examples of this. In isolation wards, uh, this is the place where, where patients go to die alone. And they, they are craving the touch of their loved ones. And nurses, in their compassion for that craving of touch, what they're doing is they're filling up surgical gloves with warm water and wrapping them around the hands of the patients to give them a sense of comfort. They're calling it the hand of God. It's not supposed to be this way. And the reason this is so painful is that one of the ways that we are made in the image of God is that we are relational creatures. God has always existed forever in loving community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we as humans are made to be in relationship, and we are incomplete without it. And in the garden, the fall brought death and separation, and the curse has alienated us from God and from each other. And God has been on a rescue mission since then to restore that broken relationship. And for those in Christ, that means that there's coming a day when every relationship will be restored but most important is the relationship with God himself will be restored. And the Bible is full of references about God coming to dwell with his people. We've already talked about God in, with Adam and Eve in the garden. There's, there's a, the, God's presence with the Israelites in the wilderness and the tabernacle. There's God's presence in the temple in Jerusalem. Then Jesus himself in the incarnation is God with us, Emmanuel. And now we have the Spirit of God indwelling us as believers. And this theme of God with us continues on here to the future of the new heaven and new earth. And that's what we see here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 21. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. For those who are in Christ, relationship will be stored through the power of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 says, so it, is, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the part of the story that makes what we heard last week on Easter a reality. This is when the funerals of every follower of Jesus, as Pastor Tim said, will be ruined and one of the most mind-bending, breathtaking things about the new creation is that we will be restored to the intimate face-to-face -face relationship with God himself that was intended from the beginning. It's hard to even comprehend what that's going to look like. After relationship restored, next is joy restored. Revelation 21, verses 4, it says... 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And one of the things that jumps out from this passage is the sheer intimacy and emotion that saturates these verses. God shows here once again that He's a God that feels for us. He's moved by what we've experienced. And if we're honest, we've all experienced loss and pain in this fallen world. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in his book Hyperion says, Every heart has its secret sorrow, which the world knows not. And oftentimes we call a man cold when he's only sad. See, it's in the context here of restored relationship with God that we see the compassionate care and kindness that God has for His children up close. Death, which is the cause of so much pain and sorrow in life, gets special attention in this passage. And John shares how God will personally wipe away tears from His children's eyes. Wow. Dr. Michael Kruger is a New Testament scholar, and on his blog several years ago, he had a great article that explores the eschatology in The Lord of the Rings. And towards the end of the, 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 the great story, uh, the, the, the huge final battle for, over the ring of power is over, and the hobbit Samwise Gamgee, who's one of the heroes, he, he's recovering in a friend's home, and he, he's, he's injured badly, but he, he, he will survive. And, and the last thing that he knew about the wizard Gandalf was that he saw him fall into an abyss and die sometime before. But now here at the end of the story, he hears a voice calling him back to consciousness. And this is what Tolkien writes. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? Sam lay back and stared with open mouth and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then the wizard laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, he, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter the pure sound of merriment for days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he'd ever known, but he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind or a spring, and the sun will shine out the clear, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and laughing, he sprang from bed. He said, how do, we, how do I feel? Well, I don't know how to feel. I feel, he waved his arms in the air, I feel like spring after winter, and the sun on the leaves, and like the trumpets and the harps, all the songs I ever heard. And Sam's question about the sad things coming untrue is, is very profound. Because it's asking a different question whether good, th good things are going to come true. It's asking whether or not the sad things are going to come untrue 
And Sam's statement, like Christian eschatology, realizes that there is currently something very wrong in this world. It's a place filled with sadness. It's cursed by sin. Creation is groaning for redemption. And in the final consummation, those sad things are going to be made untrue. The curse is going to be rolled back and the world is going to be changed. And we're reminded by Sam's statement about the whole point of eschatology. Eschatology is not so much about millennial positions or the structure of revelation, but it's about the problem of evil and suffering. And how's that problem going to be solved? Certain dates are so traumatic, you'll never forget them. On September 8, 1988, I was getting ready for a soccer game at Wagner High School, and one of the staff came to, uh, came to, came to get me. We were watching some videos to prepare for the game and, and told me someone was coming to pick me up. Um, six months before that, my father had been diagnosed with, with lung cancer, and we, we knew his time was running out. And when I got home, there, there were a lot of relatives and family there in the living room, and, and it, was, it was very quiet, very quiet. And, and as I sat down next to my father on, on, on his, his hospital bed that they'd put in the living room, I just, I just held his hand. And after a few minutes, he stopped breathing. And I didn't know what to do. I just ran to my mom and my sister, and we comforted each other best we could. And one of the things about death is that there's no formula or playbook about how to respond to it. There just isn't. And I just knew that after a little while, I needed to get out of there. I just couldn't handle it anymore. So I asked for a ride to my soccer game, actually, so I, I could play. I, I just needed something that made sense to do in that moment. Reverend Bird from Watkins Methodist Church, just, just up the road here on Westport Road, which is where we went at the time, he, he was such a great comfort to our family during that time. And he, he actually gave me a ride. And it was a long ride, and neither of us spoke. And after a long silence, I managed to ask him, why did my dad die? And, and he said... I don't know. And at the time, and for many years after, those words have felt so inadequate, so, so empty, so meaningless. How can you not know? You're the man of God. But see, I'm, I'm a grown man now, and I've got a little bit of experience in pastoral ministry. And I look back at his answer in retrospect now is the most honest answer he could have given. And because it was honest, it was loving. See, sometimes in the midst of sorrow and suffering, there's just nothing more to say. And where human words fail sometimes, fail to comfort, God's word will never fail you. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Matthew 5.4, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And one of the most powerful and attractive things about Christianity is we get to have a living and personal relationship with a God who is not detached from our experiences. In John chapter 11, 
Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And, and when Mary comes out, he, he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't try to give her all the theological answers. He says when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it says this sentence, two words and a period. Jesus wept. So beautiful. So, so powerful. And if you're here today and you're, you're grieving and you're in pain, I want you to know that you've come to the right place. Because God knows how you feel. Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And he not only has experienced that kind of grief and sorrow, he's also the only one that can perfectly heal it. And that's what we see here in Revelation 21.4. This promise is fulfilled to perfection. Jesus is wiping away. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. No more mourning or crying or pain. He says, I'm making all things new. The NIV says that the old order of things have passed away. The old order of the curse is permanently and finally surrendering to the God of the universe. God says he's making all things new. All the suffering and all the sorrows of this life will be redeemed and restored. And for those of us who are in Christ, every sorrow, every death, every violation or injustice that you've ever experienced will be reversed. That means that I will see my dad again in the new Jerusalem. And the power and the beauty of that understanding not only will the sad things come untrue, but somehow, by God's grace, the suffering will be transformed into a greater glory. 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are... See, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, come on. That's so good. C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, some mortals say of some tempering suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Oh, feel the hope. Feel the hope in this. From joy restored, lastly we move to our calling restored. 
in ancient Near Eastern culture, it was common for kings to construct statues of themselves and to scatter them throughout the kingdom to remind the people, lest they forget that they're still ruling, right? Now, these images of the king represented the king's rule and the king's authority, even though he wasn't physically present. And one of the most outstanding claims of Genesis 1 is that God is multiplying his image through every person that's ever been created. That means that every person you ever meet has incredible value and worth and dignity just because God made them. Okay? And being made in the image of God, that also means that we have a royal significance that is tied directly to our calling to rule and to steward God's creation on his behalf. In Revelation 22, we see our calling to rule and reign with God fully restored to its original state and glory. Revelation 22, 3 and 5 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And listen to this. And they will reign forever and ever. And that's being in God's presence that will reign forever and ever. God will restore what was lost in our calling in the fall with Adam and Eve. And again, the end looks backward and gives meaning and purpose to our life in God's kingdom today. See, we don't have to wait until the new creation to get started. New heaven and new earth should change how we live now and today. Every follower of Jesus is called to represent him in everything we do to bring prosperity and blessing into every situation and into every conversation. We are to rule and to reign, but not through political power, but through a transformed life that impacts our world through a renewed mind, the power of the Holy Spirit, and through sacrificial love. At New Life, we call it the Kingdom Triangle. As we close, John's pastoral purpose in Revelation is to summon all generations throughout all of history to follow the Lamb and to resist the evil of the, of the kingdoms of this world and to overcome and to persevere and suffer if we must for His name and for His kingdom and for His glory. Verse 7 of chapter 21 says, The one who conquers or, or, or overcomes will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son or daughter. Earlier in Revelation 12, he says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. At the very end of the Lord of, the Lord of the Rings, after the final battle, after the, the final victory of, over Sauron, when the rightful king has been enthroned and everyone has returned to the restored homeland, Frodo invites Sam to go on one final journey together where Frodo will say farewell to his best friend for the last time in Middle-earth. 
But just before they set out, Frodo gives Sam a special gift. Tolkien writes, In the next day or two, Frodo went through all of his papers and writings with Sam. And there was a big book with plain red leather covers. Its tall pages were now almost filled. It was divided into chapters, but chapter 80 was unfinished. And after that, there were some blank leaves. The title page had many titles on it, crossed out one or another. Here, Bilbo's hand had ended and Frodo had written, The Downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King. Why, you have nearly finished it, Mr. Frodo, Sam exclaimed. Well, you have kept at it, I must say. I have quite finished, Sam, said Frodo. The last pages are for you. Sam's story isn't finished. That's the way Tolkien leaves it. There's more to write. And we've said throughout this series that our most beloved stories borrow their truth and their power and their beauty from the great story. And we have the privilege and the high honor to live in the heart of the great and true story written by the great author. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Our resurrection in the, in the new heaven and the new earth is a glorious and hopeful picture of what we can expect at the end of all things, at the end of the story. And it is meant to comfort us, but it's also to remind us that we have many chapters to fill in between now and then. There are many battles ahead for us and adventures and for our children. And their children. How will you write the end and the rest of your story? Let's pray.